0: Hello and welcome to the Deathcast. I'm your host, author, and journalist Ian Totten, and I'd like to thank you for joining me as we prepare to take our sixth look at the life of disgraced former British MP, Cyril Smith. Now, before we get into it, as always, I have the normal show notes if you'd like to follow me on social media. Just search for the Deathcast, Deathcast Pod, or Deathcast Podcast. You can find me on most social media platforms under any one of those monikers. If you would like to help support the show, there are a couple of ways you can do that. First and foremost, the most easy way is to leave a five star review wherever it is that you get your favorite podcasts. This helps others find the show more easily. Secondly, you can go to buymeacoffee.com backslash the plus death cast and make a one-time or recurring donation to the show. No amount is too small and any amount is appreciated. Alright, now that all of that is out of the way, we're going to dive into this mother. Get yourself something to drink, find a nice comfy chair, kick back and relax. I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes, let's go into the crypt. When we left off last week, we were finishing up the 1970s and coming into the early 1980s, and we were discussing... Elm Guesthouse which turned out to be a hoax as far as Cyril Smith's involvement however I did state we were going to dive into possibly the darkest chapter in Smith's known period of abuse that is the 1980s as far as his political career During this period of time, it was more of the same old, same old Smith making the normal television rounds and keeping himself in the public eye. However, he really did not do anything of note, which is why we're going to be really ignoring most of what he did as far as his political career during the 1980s because the things that he was getting involved with behind the scenes are really at the core of the matter when it comes to what we are discussing now we have discussed nullview school at great length we've also discussed some of the characters who were involved in the school since its inception in 1969 as well as the things that Smith is known to have done there. However, beginning in the late 1980s, an individual began to compile a dossier of reported abuses at the school. This was a man by the name of Martin diggin and it's important to note that there are Different timelines for when Diggin actually became involved with the school. If you see documentaries on Knollview, it paints the picture that Diggin was involved with Knollview beginning at some point in the late 1970s, early 1980s. However, if you read the reports put out by the Rochdale Council, it states that he became involved with the school at some point in the late 1980s. He was basically the head social worker at the school. According to Diggins' own account, he began noticing things were amiss at the school almost instantly, as there were a slew of men who would show up to the school, and he would oftentimes catch them watching the boys while they were in the communal showers. Diggin has stated that he raised concerns to the headmaster of the school about this type of conduct, although it does not appear that his worries were taken into consideration. Diggin also began to take note of the fact that it appeared to him that a number of the boys were engaging in sexual activities at the Smith Street toilets, which, again, we covered in an earlier episode. However, unlike other individuals who worked at the school prior to Diggins' employment, He actually was concerned and alarmed over this. If you'll recall, many made note of the fact that they believed the boys were involved in these types of activities. Diggin actually spoke with boys and confirmed his suspicions, which, again, it appears that he brought to the headmaster and was largely ignored. If you will recall, one of the individuals who had in fact been convicted of abuses taking place at Nollview School was Roderick Hilton. Well, in 1989-1990, the school was alerted that Hilton was back in the area, and fairly quickly it was learned that he had been on the school grounds this after. A student was overheard telling another student that Hilton had been in their dormitory, and had in fact spent the night in one of the students' rooms. I'm going to read from the report compiled by the Rosedale Council. On Tuesday, September 11th, 1990, Graham Hutchinson, acting deputy head, recorded in the school communication book that Hilton was in the area and that staff should be vigilant. The undisputed facts are that Hilton gained entry into the school that night and slept under a boy's bed. On the next day, Wednesday, 12 September 1990, he gained entry to the school again and sexually assaulted at least ROA14, a vulnerable boy whose per- personal circumstances before joining Knollview School had been a source of concern roa14 was suspended the day after he was sexually assaulted because he had physically assaulted another boy from the school the records about this incident and how it came to light are a ca- cause of separate concern a record of 11 october 1990 noted that on 17th september 1990 an Oldview school staff member Paul Davies had overheard Hilton saying that he had been into the Norden unit, the unit where Hilton had stayed overnight, and this prompted Mr. Davies to interview the boys from that unit, apart from RO-14, who had been suspended, and one other boy. It was at this point that the boys disclosed that Hilton had spent the night in RO-A-14's room. This sits uneasily with a note made three days earlier on 14 to September 1990 in which Mr. Hutchinson described how on Tuesday morning it had been reported that Hilton was in the vicinity and that on Thursday night, in other words, 13 September 1990, he was seen with one of the pupils at 9.30 p.m. at the door of the Norton unit and was told to leave but was seen on a further three occasions that night with the same boy. According to the note, the police were informed about this but did nothing. The note goes on to record that at 10.35 p.m., a group of boys were speaking to Hilton who told them to let him inside. At 11.15 p.m., he was seen by a member of staff on the roof and was dealt with. The note states that the two boys told staff that Hilton had stayed the night under ROA-14's bed on Tuesday and Wednesday night and concludes with the words, Rod has given ROA-16 one pound, and we believe that Rod will want his pound of fresh flesh rather than a one-pound coin. The truth was that Hilton had already obtained his pound of flesh. Despite staff being told that Hilton had spent two nights in the, in the boys' room, ROA-14 was not asked about what had happened until he returned to school on 21 September 1990. A further note of 18 September 1990 records that a staff member contacted Hilton's probation officer who informed him that Hilton was in breach of a probation order. With telling understatement, Hilton's probation officer was of the view that as Hilton was a Schedule One sex offender, it was not unreasonable that he be kept away from the premises where there were children. Returning to the immediate aftermath of the Hilton incident, ROA14 provided an account To the NSPCC on 21 September 1990, this was short and lacked any detail as to the surrounding circumstances. Mr. Eaton is recorded as having said that the police position was that there was nothing they could do while children were inviting Hilton into the school because he was not breaking in. It appears that the NSPCC thought that the matter ought to be handled by the police. It is hard to conceive of greater failure on the part of the school to provide protection for its pupil than the ability of a convicted child sex offender to spend two nights in the premises and to sexually abuse at least one child. Having heard all of the evidence, we concluded that no one who dealt with this incident at the time appears to have treated it with the significance and urgency it demanded. Fortunately, the boy that we know was abused ended up dying in 1996 almost certainly from either drug abuse or committing suicide. Hilton ended up getting two years probation for this. And I want to emphasize that people at the school knew that this guy was there. It wasn't like they found out about it after the fact. One individual said that he believed the boys were having a party with Hilton and saw nothing wrong with it despite the fact that everyone who worked at the school was given specific t- instructions to get Hilton off the property as soon as he was encountered as he was a known child sex offender. This gives you an idea as to the impunity that these individuals operated with. Hilton believed he could go in there and molest these boys and face really no consequences and Unfortunately, he was largely correct. There is also the fact that numerous individuals tried to place the blame for what happened on these boys who were were molested, and that could be seen in a twofold manner a during that period of time. Again, as I've discussed in other episodes, it was believed the child sexual abuse was a problem of the lower class, but also that many of these children were basically at fault. It works in the same way as when a woman is raped where people were turning around and say if she hadn't dressed so provocatively or been so flirtatious, she wouldn't have been assaulted. Ergo, she was asking for it by her manner of dress and or actions. They took this same line of thought with these children, which is unfortunate and absolutely disgusting. And I know from having... Read interviews with many of those involved, and they do feel an extreme amount of guilt and shame over having allowed these things to occur and to continue to occur. Now, it does appear that. The school began taking some form of action in the early 1990s. On March 4th, 1991, a meeting was held, conducted by social services, with many people in attendance. And it was discussed that many of the children from the Norden unit had been placed inside of other units. With the unit effectively being shut down, we are going to talk about the problems with this line of thinking in just a moment when we come back from this first break. Face it, shaker bottles suck. Your protein shake always comes out clumpy and you look like an idiot using the thing. That's why I decided to ditch my shaker bottle for good and get myself a BlendJet 2 Portable Blender. It makes perfectly blended protein shakes in just 20 seconds. BlendJet 2 is portable, so you can blend up a smoothie at work, a protein shake at the gym, or even a margarita on the beach. It's small enough to fit in a cup holder, but powerful enough to blast through tough ingredients like ice and frozen fruit with ease. BlendJet 2 is whisper quiet, so you can make your morning smoothie without waking up the whole house. And it lasts for 15 plus blends and recharges quickly via a USB-C cord. Best of all, BlendJet 2 cleans itself. Just blend water and a drop of soap and you're good to go. So what are you waiting for? Go to BlendJet.com and grab yours today. And be sure to use the promo code DecastPod to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. No other portable blender on the market comes close to the quality, power, and innovation of the BlendJet 2. They guarantee you'll love it or your money back. Blend anytime, anywhere with the BlendJet 2 Portable Blender. Go to BlendJet.com and use the code DCASTPOD to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. Shop today and get the best deal ever. Again, that's BlendJet.com and use promo code DCASTPOD at checkout. That's capital D, capital C, A-S-T, capital P-O-D at checkout to get 12% off and free 2-day shipping. And we are back. Please don't forget to look into our sponsors as they help keep this show going. Now, before the break, I was discussing what had happened in March of 1991. They had this big meeting, and it was discussed that they were moving children from the Norden unit while also not putting any other children in it because of the fact that sexual predators had basically been allowed into the building by the students, but there was more to it than that. There were a lot of cases coming out of the Norden unit of children sexually assaulting other children. This is a problem in that the school did not address the fact that The children were preying on one another and instead moved these children to different units, giving them access to a broader range of victims and allowing these children to continue with their activities unmolested, no pun intended. They also discussed the fact that at least one student had requested an AIDS test because of the abuse that he had suffered. This is important to take note of because the school had put out a report stating that they believed students from Knollview School were at a higher risk for HIV and AIDS than students at other schools as well as the general public at large. However, the school really didn't do anything to address these issues. The first action to come concerning Nollview School came by an individual by the name of Philip Shepherd, who was a local nurse who had taken a very special interest in sexually transmitted diseases among children. Shepard and another individual actually visited Knollview School, at which point they learned from unnamed staff members of the sexual abuse that was occurring in and around the school. Uh, Naturally, Shepard was shocked by this revelation and wrote letters to both the acting headmaster as well as his subordinates. In this report that Shepard wrote, he noted that he had a very difficult time gaining access to organizations associated with the school in an effort to bring his concerns to their attention. One of the individuals that Shepard contacted was a man by the name of Ian Davey, who had been a member of the Rochdale Council. Davey stated in the Nolview report that he w- believed he had been unaware of what was going on in Nolview School. I know there are some people who say that's absolute BS, and it might be, however... Things like this tend to get compartmentalized, especially when you have people in power that are operating these rings or are involved in it. They will make certain that this information does not get to the ears of individuals who may, by chance, put a stop to it. So it is likely that Davy did not really fully grasp what was going on at Noel School, assuming he knew anything was going on. However, when he became aware of what was later termed the Shepard Report, Davy did begin making inquiries about what had been written about in Shepard's report. And this began an entire slew of investigations into Nolview School and the crimes that were being committed there. Although unfortunately at that point in time nothing really came of it. In April of 1999, Stephen Bradshaw was appointed as the new head of Nolview School and Bradshaw instantly saw that the school was in a great state of disrepair that the children seem abandoned and forlorn Brad Shaw pretty quickly found out about the things that were going on at the school and it should be noted that he did contact members of Child Protective Services demanding to know why it was taking so long for any form of real investigation to be undertaken Bradshaw began taking note of the things that were taking place at the school. Quote, on May 17, 1991, Mr. Bradshaw did something that no professional involved in the school had done to date. He set about documenting the factual matters that were contained within boys' Files, as well as allegations that he regarded as hearsay in other words, abuse that was verifiable and that which was unverifiable. He described this document as who is doing what to whom and sent it to Freeman Taylor in the social services department. Mr. Bradshaw told us it seemed logical that someone should put together all available information. His document is important in this investigation as it confirms the records that were available at the time. It's importance also lies in the fact that it appears to be the first systematic attempt by anyone to bring all the information together. Unfortunately, social services took a rather different view than those who were raising the alarm, stating in memorandums that, in their opinion, none of this fell within the abuse guidelines nor fit the definition of child-on-child sexual abuse. So basically, what you had at this point going forward were a number of individuals knowing this information, doing nothing about it, and in the decades since pointing their finger at other people in an attempt to pass the buck and get rid of any form of culpability on their part. Now all of this is eventually going to come to a head. In 1989-1990, Rochdale Social Services took 12 children from six families under what they said were conditions of ritual abuse. This ended up becoming known as the Middleton case, which is also referred to as the Langley case. It was found during the course of this particular investigation that Rochdale Social Services had severely mishandled every aspect of this case. The reason I bring this up is through ways and means this ended up feeding into something known as the Mellor Report. Named after Valerie Meller, who was a consultant psychologist at Booth Hall Hospital. Miss Meller had given evidence during the Middleton case in terms of how to identify ritual abuse and further how to approach children they suspected of being involved in ritual abuse. Meller seems to be one of those people who during this period of time saw Satanists and the like under every corner and as such took great steps to ensure that her thesis was borne out by what the children told her. Now according to people involved with the school they simply asked for Meller to let them know whether or not the school was safe and if there were any steps that could be taken in which they, they the staff, could f- protect the children from this type of abuse happening. Meller, however, had different ideas and she went into interviews with these children with the clear-cut intention of gathering evidence of ritual abuse. From this, Mellor is alleged to have contacted the police concerning the things she had learned about Noelview and was informed that there were no ongoing investigations into the school. Mellor turned around and informed the school of this, which appears to have greatly distressed those who were operating the school. At least according to the reports I have access to, the... Meller report really stirred up a hornet's nest for Knollview School. With Bradshaw later stating that because of Meller's report, he felt as though Rochdale Council had turned on him and were not supportive of his efforts to not only protect the children, but also to better the school and make it a place where children could feel safe and learn. There were further reports conducted, including from the Crown and Diane Kavanaugh, who worked for social services. And in it, basically, she seconded everything that had been stated in previous reports. One thing we do need to touch on briefly is a man we spoke about at the beginning of this episode martin diggin when i first mentioned him i said that he compiled a dossier what ended up happening was diggin brought his concerns to the attention of the school and was pretty much brushed off he learned from a staff member that cyril smith and other high-profile individuals had access to the school via their own sets of keys and this greatly concerned Diggin so much so that he set out to write a report to the school's headmaster concerning this instance now according to Diggin he actually encountered at least one individual in the school who should not have been there and when telling the man that he needed to leave was pretty much brushed off. Talking to a staff member, he was informed that this individual probably gained access to the school through the headmaster's office. So Diggins states that he went to the headmaster's office, found it unlocked, but more than that he found the outside door leading into the headmaster's office ajar which alarmed him greatly and we will talk more about this right after this break I'm on the road a lot and it's really hard to stay properly hydrated on the road there's so many choices between water and sports drinks many of them filled with sugars and other chemicals that leave you feeling run down afterwards but what if i told you there is a better solution liquid four is the category winning hydration brand fueling your well-being and their hydration multiplier is the one product you're missing in your daily routine in just one stick you get five essential vitamins and two times faster hydration than water alone Use it first thing in the morning, before a workout, when you feel run down, after a long night out, and on a long flight. One of the things I like best about the Liquid 4 Hydration Multiplier is their delicious flavor options, such as seaberry, strawberry lemonade, concord grape, lemon lime, pina colada, or my personal favorite, watermelon, but Liquid 4. Four doesn't just taste good, it's good for you. It contains five essential vitamins, B3, B5, B6, B12, and vitamin C. And it has three times the electrolytes of traditional sport drinks. But best of all, Liquid 4 is non-GMO and free from gluten, dairy, and soy, which means that anybody can enjoy it, regardless of their dietary restrictions. And now, just for listeners of my show, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code DCASTPOD at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code DCASTPOD. So go to liquid4, that's iv.com, and use promo code Capital D, capital C, A S T, capital P O D, at checkout to get 20% off your order. Liquid for hydration. It's time to take your hydration needs to the next level. And we are back. So, Diggin is inside the office of the headmaster, finds this door ajar leading to the outside world closes it firmly, and then turns around and sees a stack of papers on the headmaster's desk. He briefly glances at them, only to discover that they are all of the reports which have been compiled concerning abuses at Knollview School. He ends up taking these files and taking pictures of them, unsure of what exactly it is that he's going to do with them before returning the files to the headmaster's desk well digham ended up going and talking with his wife of the time about this who basically as i understand it told him that he would have to do whatever it is he felt right somehow word of this got back to certain people and digham was hold in no uncertain terms if you do this you are going up against very powerful individuals and this will be career suicide you're most likely going to get fired if you reveal this information well dingham ended up going forward with it to the press and giving them the pictures of the files that he had taken this eventually would help Knollview School and being closed down in 1994, but Dingham ended up having serious repercussions over the disclosure of the information that he had found. He had threats made against his life, against his family, he was indeed fired, And at least according to the last published interview I saw with him his life was still reeling from the actions that he had taken however he did state that he felt justified in taking these actions and despite the hardships that he had suffered as a result of this he would do the same thing again, which shows you the type of individual that he was. Moving further on into report, we're going to look at one area that is really the core of our subject, Cyril Smith. The roche Council report did look into Smith during this period of time, but also an associate of his by the name of Harry Wilde. It is believed that Smith and Wilde, through their unfettered access to the school by use of sets of keys, would not only go into the school at night together to abuse children, but may also have let other individuals into the school for the sole purpose of allowing those individuals to abuse these children. Now, when Dingham came forward with his information, one of the individuals who bristled at all of this, obviously, was Cyril Smith, which, as we know from earlier incidents, he did everything to downplay any form of abuse he may have been associated with, oftentimes describing what he did as just using a heavy hand in the course of carrying out corporal punishment, almost playing it off as though what he was doing was perfectly legal and well within the realms of what he, as an MP and also as a member of the board at the school should be involved in. However, we know that this was not the case and that, in fact, many who looked at this situation saw Smith's actions as being so far outside of the norm that they made contact with the police, which, again, led to nothing. Now, I know that... This has been a somewhat shortened episode, but I wanted to get the core of the matter concerning Cyril Smith into one singular episode, and unfortunately it does not bring us to the one hour mark, but I am going to call it at this point because next week we're going to get into the last real important bits of Cyril Smith's life before we do the final episode concerning the allegations that came out after his death as well as both the public and political response to these allegations. I hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Death Cast. Until next time, The Death Cast is a co-production of Corpse Creek Publishing in association with Big Pond Podcasts. Stay morbid!